0: Does your life make sense? Not to you, but to those that are watching you. In other words, if there was a totally objective observer who was watching the choices you made, the values you had, and the behaviors of, that came out of your life, would they be able to come up with a reasonable explanation for you? Or would they have to conclude that there is something implausible, preposterous, even maybe absurd about the way you live? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Incredible Christian, describes how the follower of Jesus Christ lives a counterintuitive lifestyle. Listen to these words, how he describes it. He says, the Christian believes that Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ, he has died, yet he is more alive than ever before, and he fully expects to live for eternity. He walks on earth while seated in heaven, and though born on earth, he finds that after his conversion, he doesn't really feel at home here. To be safe, he puts himself in jeopardy. He loses his life to save it, And is in danger of losing his life if he attempts to preserve it. He goes down to get up. And if he refuses to go down, he's already down. But when he starts down, he's on his way up. He is strongest when he is weakest. And and weakest when he is strong. Though poor, he has the power to make others rich. But when he becomes rich, his ability to enrich others vanishes. He has most after he has given most away and has least when he possesses most. <laughs> you see, from a human perspective, our lives should defy explanation. It should be normal. I mean, it should be totally normal for our choices, our values, and our behaviors to be seen by others as counterintuitive Contrary to common sense, and maybe even sometimes borderline absurd. So if the individual followers of Jesus are like that, is it any surprise then that when we gather together and we act corporately as the church, then the church is also seen as a counterintuitive group of people? That our choices and values and behaviors corporately should so consistently astonish outside observers that their conclusion about us is that something absurd is going on among them. So here's the uncomfortable question this morning. Does it? After taking a break uh, to enjoy the ministry of Dr. Martin Giese last Sunday, we're returning to our Summers or the early part of our summer sermon series called Dream Again. These are Sundays to examine why at this very point in the life of Lakewood Church that we need to both individually and also corporately release the past and reach forward to embrace what God has for us in the future. This is a time to take a stand against that insidious influence called the slow fade. The slow fade which could lull us into a complacent contentment to just be a monument as a church instead of returning to the exciting adventure of being a movement as a church. This is a time for us to ask the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that is to throw gasoline on the embers of our sanctified imaginations that we might audaciously believe that the best is yet to come. That God has got some amazing things yet in store for us as a body of believers. So, to stir up our imaginations... To stir up our dreaming, we decided we're gonna look at three snapshots of the local church, the early church. Each one of these is an initial expression of how Jesus Christ was building his church that he said he would do. So, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter two, verse 42 to verse 47, and we saw four powerful features when a church is a movement. And I trust that as you saw those and you reflected upon them, maybe even now continuing to reflect on them, there is inside of you this prayer, oh, God, would you do that here in our midst? Do you remember what those four were? One of them was a passionate hunger to know and be transformed by the word of God. The second one is that we wanted to have a deep loyalty to each other seen in our sacrificial caring for each other. The third was having a sense of awe over the undeniable act of, uh, acts of God happening in our midst. And then the final one was that there was a constant flow of new believers entering in to, into the body. That was snapshot number one. This morning, let's turn to snapshot number two, which can also ignite our dreaming and imaginations. And it's found in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. As we begin to look at this, watch carefully how this first generation of believers was acting so incredibly counterintuitive. Now as we open up to chapter 11 of Acts, by the way, if you have your Bibles open there or get your device and open to it, this story begins with the church feeling the pain of being pushed out. Now, the broader context to Acts 11, verse 19 is important to understand. For all has not been going well with the church. God is on the move. But at the moment, his followers are paying a painful price. Notice verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch. Ooh, there was a scattering of the early followers of Jesus because of persecution. What persecution? Well, we need to back up from here we are in Romans, excuse me, Acts 11. Back up just a couple chapters to Acts chapter 8. And let's understand some of the context. You probably know that in the first chapters of the book of Acts, Things are going marvelously for the early church. It's growing. Its impact is expanding. Things are good, and then suddenly persecution hits. The believers start being physically attacked. Chapter 8. So, starting with the stoning of Stephen, then like ripples spreading out, it went out to others who are part of that early church. Many decided, I'm going to just leave town. Others decided to stay. And some of those who decided to stay, you'll notice, were thrown in jail. In fact, look at chapter 8 and verse 3. Notice the word used there, ravaging. That word was used at that time to describe a wild beast literally tearing its prey apart. So, what do we have here in chapter 8 is that the early church in Jerusalem quickly lost a lot of its members. A considerable amount of, of its strength and vitality was gone as it was literally being torn apart. The church was devastated by grief. The church, early church, was just devastated also by a great deal of pain. So, I'm looking at this passage this week. And suddenly I realized, wow, there are some parallels to us. You know, the last three to four years have not been kind to Lakewood. How many here would have to admit it's been a season of confusion? It's been a season of pain. It's been a season of grieving loss. Or maybe it has nothing to do with Lakewood. Maybe it's just in your personal circumstances in the last few years. It's been brutal. Maybe you feel you would use the word ravaged like in verse 3. Torn apart. Maybe you feel confined at a level because it almost feels like you've been imprisoned in some way by your circumstances. When we're confused, when we're experiencing pain, When we're struggling with loss, what we do next is right where our counterintuitive lifestyle as the followers of Jesus is going to be seen. The first generation of believers acted in an illogical way. Let's go look at it. Now back to chapter 11, starting at verse 19. As we come to Acts 11 and 19, understand that many of these early believers, that for many of them, Jerusalem was not their hometown. They had come for Passover, they had come and stayed through Pentecost, and now they continued to be there. But that wasn't their hometown. So because of the persecution, for many of them, it seemed like this is a good time to saddle my donkey and ride, ride, ride. (laughs) And so the early church is now scattered, kind of like cockroaches in the night. When you turn on the light, poof, they all run. One group, we're told here in chapter 11, traveled due north from Jerusalem and came to the city of Antioch, verse 20. Now, as they come into Antioch, there are several things we need to understand as they enter into the city limits. First of all, Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It is literally only behind Rome itself and then Alexandria down in Egypt. There are over a half a million people that are living in Antioch at this very moment. Secondly, the city is a major trade center. In other words, it literally sat at the intersection of several major trade routes. So, in that town were businessmen from all over the Roman Empire from Egypt, from Syria, from Italy, from Greece, and from Babylon. We also know from what history tells us that this city is a beautiful city. Herod the Great had just finished a building program, so, there were two miles of marble streets, there were gorgeous colonnades, there was a massive city gate. In fact, it was also, for that time, a very high-tech city. Many of the people that lived there actually had indoor plumbing. (laughs) But probably one of the most important things to understand about Antioch is that it was known for its gross immorality. Two major cults had temples there on the outside of town. So, economic prosperity... Linked up with cultic prostitution to create a city that had a reputation for sensuality and very lax morals. So, walking into that city came a group of early believers that were grieving. They were beat up. And you would think that as they entered town, they would keep a low profile. I mean, after all, why bring more pain on yourself? I mean, life had turned brutal for these followers. The wound of losing people they cared about, the confusion of abrupt change, the disorientation of now being in a new strange and morally offensive culture. I mean, who could blame them if they just kept their lips zipped? But these believers did not remain silent. Again, look at the text. Some came to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, verse 20, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Interesting. These scattered believers, wherever they went, they were telling people about Jesus I mean, how counterintuitive is that? They weren't whining about their circumstances. They were winning people to Jesus Christ. So they came into town, and they were openly sharing about the good news. I mean, who would have anticipated that? And right here, we're introduced to a very important truth that we all ought to wrestle with. And here's the truth. When we are pushed out, continue. To speak up. Now look at verse 20. Notice how it mentions that these believers were speaking to the Hellenists? That describes people in that day who had adopted the Greek culture and the Greek mindset. In other words, Hellenists were people who did not think Uh, like a Jew, nor did they act like a Jew. In other words, the Old Testament law had no influence in their mindset or in their behavior. In other words, Antioch was morally about as far away from Jerusalem as you could get. And yet, into that worst case scenario come the followers of Jesus boldly proclaiming how Jesus Christ had personally transformed their life. And boy, does that have some powerful application for us in at least two different ways. For example, first, counterintuitive followers of Christ realize that when we are pushed out, we are to see it as part of God's plan. God allowed the persecution to detonate there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But the end result is that it scattered those early believers all the way across the whole eastern end of the Roman Empire, which tells us that penetration, not preservation, is what God has designed for His church. The first church was turning into a holy huddle. God wanted them to go out beyond the cultural confines of Israel. He wanted people who did not think like a Jew, did not act like a Jew, to have the opportunity to respond in faith to the claims of Christ. Which means there are going to be times when we are pushed out by God. His agenda of penetration is going to trump our agenda of preservation. And being pushed out could sometimes come by our external circumstances turning very painful on us. Like having a job change that we weren't expecting. Losing a job in a way that we weren't expecting. A physical move is required of us. We lose our health. We have a financial setback. There's the loss of an important relationship. I mean, the list can go on and on and on of what's incredibly painful. And yet God is sovereignly involved in those times, and there's no mistake, it's not an accident. At those very moments, I don't know about you, but my natural reaction is I'm going to pull back. I'm going to withdraw I'm going to stay silent because of my grief, because of my pain. And yet that then highlights a second application to think about. Will we see being pushed out as an opportunity to look beyond our natural horizons and to see people who may not look like us, who may not think like us, who may not even act like us, but who desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and what he can do for them. In other words, when he pushes us out, don't pull back, don't pull in, rather speak up. I've only been around here seven months, but I'm already recognizing that our church sits at a An important crossroads, both physically and literally, as well as in this season of the history of this church, the Brainerd Lakes area is where people come all from all over the place to enjoy recreation. But what they need is recreation. The cabin and lake culture here. Lures people to come in, and oftentimes what they settle for is a brief season of finding relief when what their heart needs is restoration. And are they going to hear from us, even if it's spoken from a context of personal pain, what Jesus Christ can do for them? See, it is so, so counterintuitive. continue to speak up when we've been pushed out. Now back to the text. Let's look at the second part of the story. The good news was being shared and then came the surprise of phenomenal response. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number, and by the way, this that phrase great number is going to be repeated several times in the rest of this paragraph. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Isn't that incredible? Large numbers responded. I mean, who would have thought that these wealthy, influential, immoral, urban sophisticates would see their need of Jesus? Who would have thought? Of course, the answer is right there, in verse 21, the explanation? The hand of the Lord was with them. God was doing more than they could ask or imagine. You know, so often we think that just because someone has a great deal of money That someone has a great deal of influence, someone has a great status in this world, they've got a lifestyle with no moral restrictions, that they don't have any spiritual needs. And we can get sucked into thinking that, and it not only influences how we relate to them, it influences how we initiate towards them, and we think that those things really do satisfy. And that these kinds of people are not really looking for something real. I mentioned several weeks ago that there was a, uh, a time when I had the privilege of being the interim pastor in Colorado Springs, and it was where this dying church, Bethany Baptist, ended up God merging it with a new church plant, and it became a church called the Sanctuary. And I think I told you that the, the Sanctuary is located on a side of town that's got a real rough edge to it, um, And one of the things they started doing immediately was on Christmas Eve, they held what they called Blue Christmas. And it was a celebration, it was a worship time, but they understood that for many people in their immediate community, Christmas can be a very painful holiday to endure. And so they did have a worship service, but they toned down the celebrative character of it and made it more reflective on What did the incarnation of Jesus Christ mean for us? So to advertise for it, they would put an ad in the personal columns in Craigslist. Well, one year, there was a young woman in town that went to Craigslist, went to the personal columns, because basically it was Christmas. It was a tough time of year. She was just looking to find a guy to have a hookup with. She saw the ad from the church. She was compelled, and so she went. And at the end of the service, this young gal met Jesus. See, what looks so good, what looks to be so satisfying, literally often leaves a a person feeling empty and restless because every single person has this God-shaped hole in their soul that literally can only be filled by Jesus Christ. Do I believe that? Now look at verse 22. Even though Antioch is 300 miles away from Jerusalem, what happened? The report of all this, of what's going on in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas. So what was left of the church in Jerusalem hears of the good things God is doing among the Gentiles in Antioch, so they send one of their key leaders, Barnabas. Now again, remember what's been happening in the church at Jerusalem recently. They've been going through a very brutal, rough period of time. Persecution has thinned the ranks dramatically, so it would be really easy for them to say, well, wait a minute, we need to regroup, we need to recover, we can't afford to give anybody away right now. But that's not what they did, is it? They sent one of their key guys to be of help. Why? Because they felt responsible for this growing movement among the Gentiles. And look what happens when Barnabas arrives, starting at verse 23. And when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great, here we go again, great many people were added to the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? Barnabas comes. He sees these great things that are happening. And what does he do? He challenges these new believers to a strong commitment level of staying tight with Jesus Christ. He doesn't lower the bar, he raises the bar. And what happens? more people come to Christ. And there is the second major truth to wrestle with in the passage. When good news spreads out, give to build deep. The church of Jerusalem did not even hesitate to send Barnabas to them. They were not about ready to protect their own resources when God was doing something wonderful up in Antioch. It didn't matter that they were Gentiles. It didn't matter that they had their own needs. People were coming to Christ and godly leadership was needed. Well, the practical application of that is is enormous for all of us because it challenges us just like the first truth challenged us. This one challenges us to ask, When I see the hand of the Lord moving, am I willing to give away the best of resources that I have for the sake of helping new believers grow deep into Christ? What are some of those best resources? Well, like the church in Jerusalem, we may be asked to intentionally invest people. Are we ready, are we willing to give the best of our personnel to the purposes of the Great Commission? Now, don't think corporately here with me for a moment. Think individually, personally about this. Parents, what if that means being supportive of your son or daughter who wants to serve the Lord in a cross-cultural ministry for the rest of their life, and they're going to live on the other side of the world from you? Grandparents, what if one of your grandchildren wants to go? (laughs) As a pastor in Florida, I was really tested on this one. There was a point in the life of the church there in Florida when it was a, we were going through a very difficult time and I really needed every godly elder I could find to stand with me and yet it was right at that point that one of my best elders came to me and said that he and his wife were feeling called to join a ministry in China. (laughs) I remember thinking, wait, I need you here. But was I willing to have an open hand for God to take some of the best and invest it somewhere else where He was really needed? (laughs) Are we willing to intentionally invest the best personnel we have? A second one is, how about the resource of our emotional energy? In the midst of my pain, Am I willing to have my heart fall in love with new believers? Some of whom may still have offensive habits and irritating perspectives on life. Am I willing, even in the midst of my pain, to open up my social circle to brand new, new believers, investing in them to help them grow in their knowledge of the Word of God, and their relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I, because I'm more mature, willing to adapt my preferences in order to see them mature in Jesus Christ? Am I willing to invest emotionally? And obviously a third way is, am I willing to invest my finances? Am I being generous financially in giving to the Lord so that through this church, God's kingdom purposes starting in this community and reaching out across the world can continue to be achieved? Now look at the text. What was the result of this kind of sacrificial investment and resources being given to new believers to go deep? Well, The attendance numbers continue to fly off the chart. And what does Barnabas do? Verse 25, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Why did he do that? Because Barnabas realized that he alone could not meet all the needs of that growing church. Okay, if one person can't meet all those needs, what are the needs? Well, look at the text. Last part of, or the middle part of verse 26. He brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Ooh, there's the need. The need was for biblical teaching. One person couldn't do it all. It needed a team. And so for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas together did nothing but build into these young believers. They purposefully and intentionally cultivated spiritual maturity. And what they did was incredibly powerful because look at the undeniable mark in the last sentence of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Hey, look carefully at that. The title Christian was not something believers called themselves. Rather, this was something the unbelieving community called them. In other words, that year of teaching... Had so transformed these new believers' lives that people on the outside began referring to these believers as, oh, you Christ like ones. And that was not a compliment, it was a very derogatory term. You see, Barnabas was not content just to see more and more people come to Christ, though he was glad, as we saw that up in verse 23, that it was happening. But he knew that the growing quantity needed to be matched with a deepening quality of a spiritual life. In other words, it is dangerous for a church to be a mile wide, but only an inch deep. In fact, Paul describes this strategy for us later in his ministry in Colossians chapter 1 in verse 28 when he writes for us, we proclaim him, meaning Jesus. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect. Literally that word means mature in Christ. So in the early church, God's word was not only about passing along correct biblical information, but it was also seeing truth as a catalyst for life transformation. It changed people's lives. But unfortunately, we live in a day where many in evangelical churches have got this all messed up. Many people are under the mistaken notion that if they fill their heads with a bunch of biblical knowledge, then they are spiritually mature. But this passage shows us that's not the truth. Life change is the ultimate evidence of maturity. By the way, in Antioch, the believers were called Christians by outsiders. So what do the non-Christians who know you well, what do they call you behind your back? The first snapshot was not given to us for interesting information, but rather to fire up our imaginations. Such it is with this snapshot. Like with Acts chapter 2 that we looked at, we need to be reminded of what Jesus Christ was doing in that first generation so that we in our generation will ask, what if? He wants our dreams to become a a reality by returning us to being a movement. So to dream again, to engage our imaginations in what God might have in mind for us at Lakewood's future, is going to demand then counterintuitive choices and values and behaviors. None of which is going to be possible though, apart from the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our midst. So from this passage in Acts 11, let's do the same thing we did two weeks ago. Let's finish by just taking a moment to focus on the two key descriptions and truths that we looked at, and let's dream for just a minute. Let's ask, first of all, what difference would there be if in me personally or in all of us corporately, there was an uninhibited sharing of Jesus to penetrate our community? In other words, what if, what if, regardless of the pain I've experienced here at Lakewood in recent years, or I am currently experiencing in my present circumstances, despite that pain, I'm committed. I am not going to be silent. What if, what if I, what if I believe that despite the external facade that I see in others? That each, peop, that each person needs more than relief, that really they are looking for a heart restoration or a heart rescue, even if they're not willing to admit it. And that I've got the privilege, the privilege of pointing them to Jesus. Or second, what difference would, would there be if in me or if in us corporately there was a sacrificial giving to build deep into new believers. In other words, what if some of us gathered together and thought through a one-year discipleship course that would ground someone in their new faith? What if? What if? I was less concerned about the church meeting my needs and I was more concerned about how I can personally invest and be of help in seeing new believers grow. Just take a moment, like we did two weeks ago. Just look at those two truths from Acts 11. Let's reflect on those for a moment. And then I'll close this in prayer. Father, it would be really easy for any of us to look at what Acts 2 revealed in that powerful story or even here in Acts 11, and it would be really easy for any of us just to get loaded down with a great deal of guilt and shame, but that's not your intention. Your intention is not to beat us up about our past, but to get us to dream again about the future because we see in these stories your intention for building your church even in cultural contexts that are hostile to the gospel. That there are people that are looking for something real. They are looking for us and waiting for us to share Christ with them in appropriate, loving ways. Father, would you do this supernatural work here at Lakewood among us to get us to dream again, to fire up our imaginations, not about what humanly is possible for us to do, but to see the work of God in our generation penetrate our community? And Father, may we be known as a church that's not a mile wide and an inch deep, but rather wants to see the Word of God known and allow it to transform the way we live. Father, these are pretty audacious prayers. But Father, we pray it, not wanting man to get any kind of credit whatsoever, but that we might be your church in this generation, in this community, in a way that brings you glory. Oh, Father, would you do that again here among us, we pray. In the faithful and powerful name of our Heavenly Father, we ask it. Amen.